<laughs> this fifth Sunday, our format has changed a bit, and we have a three-part sermon this morning, broken up into three distinct sections, but all based on the first few verses of Mark chapter 1. So if you turn to page 7 in your bulletin for the outline, and uh, we'll follow along now in Mark chapter 1, in the first few verses. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his paths. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. We do now bow before you, Lord, as we have in song and worship before your eternal and perfect word and ask that you might direct our hearts and understandings. In Jesus' name, amen. So we read this far in the first eight verses of the gospel according to Mark and We still don't meet Jesus, but right after this section, of course, he comes appearing in the wilderness for the first time. This is as close as Mark gets to the incarnation story. And if we set it within the whole context of the Bible, it's really quite remarkable. What he is saying is, I come to you. You have turned away since the days of the Garden of Eden. And when I sent the prophets, you rejected them, and you did not listen. And over the centuries, now even 400 years since the day of Malachi, you have not listened. But I am not rejecting you. I am not turning away from you. I am coming to you. He comes in Luke's gospel, of course, in the days of Mary and Joseph in the form of a child. Now having grown up, we see him in his full maturity and the beginning of his public ministry. And here he comes. But let us say at the beginning, as I do in the outline, that a Jesus that you and I shape or that we make up cannot really change or renew us, cannot contradict or challenge us. If you want a Jesus who can really help you, you have to get the real Jesus, And that's what we're given here by Mark. As Kevin said last week in the introductory sermon, a succinct, straightforward, and moving Jesus, an active one, who has now come and who has appeared in the wilderness. And Mark's message, he will proclaim. His first words in verse 15 are, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But he doesn't look like a king. Born as he was, a a, a vulnerable baby. Chesterton says, the hands that shaped the universe couldn't even reach the cow's head above him. Little baby child. 
blessed, delivered in, in perfection, and now grown up to a time of maturity and ministry. He's a king, and he's bringing in a kingdom. But it is not like the other kingdoms we have heard of or seen. They're quite different indeed. Luke says he was the light in the darkness. This king is the single man in the desert. He appears not enshrouded by a throne or a retinue or a great ensemble of associates and followers. He comes alone by by himself into the desert where the people have come to see him. More about that in a moment. But let us first identify him more clearly. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 is quoted right off the bat. And of course that says that the Lord Yahweh is the one who will come. And now he says, says John, this is the Lord. This is the Messiah. This is the one who would come. Not impressive any more than a baby coming into a home with a poor mother and father. But king nevertheless. And bringing a kingdom that is built around this idea of repentance as we shall see. So as I say in the outline, the ancient hope of Israel had been predicted from Isaiah 43 that a king would come someday who would take down every mountain and raise up every valley and heal the world, the world of its brokenness. And that king now has come. Don't miss him. John is pointing to him. He's calling the people to see him. Here he comes in his greatness. Don't miss it. For the ideal has now become real. What we hoped for has now come. The metaphysical has been phys- become physical. The immortal has become mortal. The baby is born and now it's a man and he comes to us out of the wilderness. So what does this mean for us? This is the stage onto which Jesus steps. This is the announcement which is made on his behalf by the last and the greatest of the prophets, John the Baptist. This is big. Although it doesn't look big. It doesn't have the fanfare, as I said, of most kingly entrances. Trumpets blaring, people bowing, horses and riders and armies at the ready. And the people praising and looking into his face. This is a real king, and if you let him shape your life, as I say, it'll change the motivational drive of it. From fear of failing before God and other people to a trust that he will never fail us because he sent his son to love us and to die for us. We don't need the fanfare. We need a savior. We don't need a rich and mighty king. We need a humble and awesome servant to be our redeemer. So look clearly at how he comes. It it was not by accident or happenstance. He came on purpose in just this way. As a tiny baby, a light in the darkness, and as a man in the desert. This means, too, that we have a king who, though he was rich all his life, also is familiar with suffering, as Isaiah writes. He's been through it, and he knows what you're up against. He's been alone. He's been rejected. He's suffered unfairly. 
This is a huge resource for suffering. This is a key. It's hard to identify with a lofty and distant monarch. But this king, whose kingdom is built on repentance and faith, we can identify with because he identified with us. He made himself low. He took on the form of a servant. He became poor that we might become rich. And personally, too, look at John the Baptist. Although we're not called to be great apostles, he was a voice. He was a witness. He was a testimony. He said, in myself I am nothing, but the one I serve is the greatest in the world. He saw the identity of the king, and he saw himself in relation to him. And he didn't see a chasm from someone he couldn't identify with, but he said, this man who cares and understands about me is so much better than I am, so much greater than I am, that I am nothing. He really gets it. He really understands. John is confident because he's not looking at himself, but at the Lamb of God. The greatness of Jesus, in a sense, flowed through John because John was like Paul, who wrote, For what we preach is not ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord. And ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So if, like John, we proclaim him and not ourselves, and we let God's word come to people through us, we also can become a voice, a witness, and a testimony, like John did. It doesn't matter if in yourself you feel weak, all the better. Just tell them the king has come. Let him do the work, for he already has. May we pray. Jesus, it is astonishing that you would come after centuries of rejection by your people. They turned away from your law, they turned away from your prophets. They would not listen, and they chased after the pleasures and the idols of the nations around them. And still we find you coming, first as a child and now as a man, described in the Gospels as, in a sense, coming out of nowhere, because you would keep your covenant in spite of our breaking it. You would be faithful in spite of our unfaithfulness. You would be the one the King, the Lord, even when you had disobedient subjects. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming in again and for, for letting us see you as the risen King and as the one who now begins his ministry on the road to the cross. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you missed his first coming and you'd heard about him being out in the wilderness and you'd heard of the description of how the heavens opened and the dove came down and he heard the voice from heaven that said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And you asked someone who was there and said, what was it like and what was he like? Can you describe him for me? And they would have said he was unremarkable. Nothing special about him, nothing that was attractive 
about him. Ordinary, unremarkable, no grand attractions are surrounding him. So we look a little closer. This is unusual. But when we look a little closer, we see an amazing contrast. Think with me again. Here's a man coming to be king. And if we look into the Old Testament, we see the contrast with the second Adam and the first is remarkable, is instructive. Jesus came to teach, as well as to heal, as well as to suffer and die. And here, even as he steps forward and hasn't spoken a word, he begins to teach us who he is. Paul calls him the second Adam. Really just two men in history, by his theological descriptions there, The first Adam who came into a garden and to lushness and pleasure everywhere. Eternal life if he just would not eat of the tree of the knowledge of sin and evil, of good and evil. But he fell into temptation. And instead of obeying his father about the tree, he obeyed himself. In in cooperation with Eve, he ate. He gave in. He surrendered to the temptation. And we're told that soon thereafter he had to cover himself, hiding first in the bushes and then taking the skins of wild animals for protective cover. In a sense, a picture of what we have done ever since because sin has caused us to shrink back and to not be ourselves and to not be faithful and to to want to hide even from God. But now comes the second Adam. And he arrives not in a garden, but in a desert. A wilderness. A place where, of the opposite of a garden. Not of lushness, but of spareness. Not of plenty, but of want. And yet he faithfully faces the temptation. The, the incident, of course, right after his baptism and right after this opening section is him going for 40 days and 40 nights again out into the wilderness, not in a garden, but a place of deprivation and thirst and loss and pain and suffering. And there, for 40 days and nights, he resists. The first Adam comes in the garden and falls prey to temptation and covers himself with the skins of wild animals. But the second, again, still not having said a word, comes into the wilderness And out of that wilderness brings victory over temptation and sin. And it says that the wild animals were with him. They were his friend. Didn't need to be killed for covering because his own righteousness was its own covering. As I say, he said not a word, yet he's already teaching us. He's teaching us that if you want to find this king, you will have to go out into the desert. He won't be found among the lushness and the gardens of life. Eremos is the word there for wilderness or desert. It appears several times. And it's striking. Not only isn't he surrounded by the fanfare and power of the armies of a normal king and the wealth that is on display, but he comes in total deprivation. So he knows what it is 
to be on the outside. And when you're empty, and when you feel you need something, when your life is, at, at least it's to some extent, at a desert place, go to him. Some would say that Jesus is the one who brings wealth and pleasure. He certainly brings a rich life. But he especially brings an invitation to receive the lonely, the empty, the ones who feel like they're in a desert place. A place that cannot easily sustain life. A place of thorns, of thirst, of loneliness. This, of course, is where Moses met God in the burning bush, where the Israelites struggled for 40 years. A place where you cannot stay alive without his help. Without the manna, without the water that he led them to, they would have all perished in those days of wandering. There is no hope without him. When you see this, you see that you need special help. And you say, I need cleansing. And I can't wash myself. So his coming was arranged. First as an infant to show his vulnerability and yet his kingship. And second, in the desert, in a wilderness, is to say, I'm coming to you, but look who at who I am. In contrast to the first Adam who fell, I am the second Adam who succeeded, who defeated Satan, who resisted temptation. This is, again, a wordless invitation to rely on him. I know what I'm doing. It's as if he says, I've come out of the worst geophysical environment that I could come out of, and I'm fine. Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come out with me even into the desert, and I will be your Lord and King. And so I ask you, are you in a desert place at some part of your life? Some things that aren't happening that you would like to see happen. Maybe because of sin. Maybe because others have sinned against you. He's coming to you. That's the picture, isn't it? A people in the wilderness and someone coming to them. Through Moses through the prophets, and now through Jesus, a people walking in darkness are seeing a great light, a people wandering in the desert are having a deliverer come to them. And yet, so far as I say, he says not a word. So when you grow weary of trying to express yourself, when you grow tired of by yourself determining what is right or wrong, When living any way you want, as long as no one else gets hurt, leaves you feeling totally empty. When you are done with asserting that you can believe whatever you want and need something to believe in, and Jesus will be your oasis in the desert of life, then repent and believe the good news of God. Lay down your burdens. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. He says later in Matthew, come to me. 
I'm in the desert. I will dwell with you there in the wilderness, and I will make the crocuses bloom. I will bring refreshment in that dry and lonely place. And then finally, remind yourself of what you are, of what you are under your own power. Call out in desperate dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Then will come the joyful freedom of knowing that in the end, nothing in life rests on your ability and your wisdom. See again that every success and every blessing you have ever known has been from Him. That's the King who gives good gifts to His people. He spoke not a word, but He's told us all this already. Because in the context of the Scriptures, we now see His identity clearly. He is the one who brings answer and refreshment. He is the one who brings hope and and joy. He is the one on whom we really can rely, who has been there in the temptation, in the wilderness, and will be with us when we face it too. So even as He comes to them, and goes the extra mile, as it were, to come to them, he's also saying, come to me. So without teaching or saying a word, we're now in the king's academy, and we're learning from him already. His identity, what he comes to do. Sin is the problem, not water. Sin and the burdens of temptation are the difficulty, not loneliness. So come to me, he says, for I am the victor over sin. And learn to rely on me. I can fill you up when you feel empty and dry. I can meet your needs when you feel lonely and rejected. I will be there for you when no one else can or will. I will stand with you in the desert places and I will refresh you and give you rest. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are the divine and perfect teacher and your message is welcome to our ears and to our hearts. For we often dwell in desert places with a strong sense of loss and loneliness and weakness. And here you come to us in such a place. Here you don't say, fix it yourself, or come to me when you've got things together. You come to us. You condescend and care. And it gives us confidence that you really can make a difference in our lives. Even with these chronic problems, even with these issues that don't seem to go away, I can trust you. And Jesus, thank you for doing this. You didn't have to. You certainly didn't have to endure the 40-day and 40-night temptation of of the devil. You certainly could have surrounded yourself with the angels and glories of heaven and declared to everyone who you really were openly. But you were ever a teacher. 
And in your lonely life, you led us to know that we can rely on you. Teach us this simple lesson. We want to rely on ourselves. We want to rely on our achievements. We want to rely on the blessings of life that you have showered upon us. But they are fleeting, and they won't support the weight that we would give them. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, come to us in the desert and be our all in all. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now to page nine and the third in our section on the coming of the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Familiar to us from the days of Sunday school are these words from John the Baptist. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And that's what John has come to do. This road, as I've said, is a road of rejection. Although he has come uninvited and has come out of the wilderness again to reach out to his people, his people, as they did with the prophets, and as, as, as happened to John the Baptist, they rejected it. The free offer of the gospel was turned away. As he comes to his people, he comes to the cross. He's looking beyond even the wilderness days that he is encountering his people for the first time. And soon we'll be saying to Peter and James and John and Andrew, come, follow me. I'm on a road. I'm headed somewhere. Get behind me on this highway. We've got work to do. There's something to be done here, and I'm calling you to be a part of it. It's not as if we stand off and say, wow, look at what Jesus has done in coming out of the desert to us and in being baptized and having a voice from heaven proclaimed over him. But he invites us into the realm of his world and into a world of sacrifice, suffering, and death. Not very attractive, not very pleasant, not very inviting. Sacrifice, suffering, and death. And he makes it clear from the beginning, as we read in just a few verses in the next week, as he calls them, he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. But he has a plan and a purpose in his mind. He's on the way to something. He's on the way to the cross. In fact, every other reference in Mark, that refers to the word road, refers to the way of Calvary. He's on that road now. Not to thrones, but to crosses. Not to power, but to sacrifice. Jesus Academy's lessons continue to say, this is what my kingdom is like. My kingdom is a way of repentance and faith, and it's a way of following the king. I'm sure 
many subjects, including the colonial patriots, didn't think much of their king and didn't support many of his programs and plans and endeavors. And kings often had to hire soldiers from other nations to fight for them because their own people wouldn't. And so Jesus calls us to follow him. Will we? He doesn't mince words. He doesn't hide the fact that this road that Max and Zachary are on is a road of sacrifice, of suffering, and of service. He doesn't promise that it'll be easy. He doesn't say that all of our prayers will be answered as we would like. He doesn't even offer a long life. Our lives may be shorter than we had imagined them to be. And he certainly doesn't minimize the opposition. The devil appears to him immediately following his baptism and haunts him at various places until the cross. The greatness of this king is that he goes to a cross and not a throne. For he is not just a king, he is a servant, bringing salvation by grace. So he doesn't enslave, he liberates. See, the other side of this service and suffering and sacrifice and cross is a tremendous liberation. Liberation not only at death when the body is freed, when the soul is freed from the body, but liberation in life. Because he knows how this world works. And if Peter and James and John and Andrew will only listen, they will see from the earliest days that he knows what is in a man, as John says. So he didn't entrust himself to the crowds. He ministered to them, but he never built his acceptance or his self-image on what they said of him. And if our sense of acceptance and self-image is not built on what the crowds say, and on what the people give us by way of thanks, then we're free. If I'm not bound up in what you think of me, and because of Christ I'm set free from what God thinks of me, then I'm free indeed. Liberated. Captives are set free. The lame are healed. The blind have sight. This kingdom is all-encompassing and sets us free. And we learn that it is actually better to give than to receive. That actually the way up is by going down to serve. That the way to greatness is by becoming small and meek and serving others. That is built deeply into the universe by the one who made the universe, and most people work against it their whole life. They work against the grain because they think that it's about their greatness, and they're seeking it, their comfort, their peace. So by way of application, Jesus has gone before you into the heart of a very real battle to draw you into the ultimate reality of new life in him. 
And what he has enjoyed from all eternity, he has come now to offer you and me. If Jesus is not just a great human being, but God, and if this God became a king who goes to the cross for you, how should you respond to him? The only rational responses to him are extreme, radical. You hate him, as Pilate did, as Satan did, as the high priests and the Pharisees did, they hated him. Give us Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. And they mocked him and they spat upon him and they rejected him. That's pretty radical. They didn't treat most prisoners that way. Run from him? Peter did when confronted in the garden. And Weren't you with him? No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. And he ran away. John, excuse me, Mark, as Kevin said last week, might be that young boy who, when grasped by the soldiers, ran away. Couldn't face it. And then became the author of this gospel. Many are running from him. Many don't want what he wants. Jonah. The list is long. But the most radical and most wonderful thing we can do is kneel before him. Actually kneel. Now most of us have only gotten down on one knee when we propose. Doesn't happen very often. This king calls us to kneel before him. To get down on both knees. And to acknowledge his greatness and his kingship. His glory. For he reigns over all the universe. People just don't see it. He is gracious and loving beyond measure, and yet people run from him and hate him. But if you kneel before him, you find him he is your king. And he more than a little pays us back for what little homage we give him. So I call you to kneel before the Savior. You can rely on him to learn of his school. He's been in the wilderness. He knows where you are. And he will follow you into your wildernesses and be there right with you. And then finally, notice that this king has called to be proclaimed. He allowed John the Baptist to tell others, and he wants witnesses. Peter, James, John, Andrew, the others. He wants them to be witnesses, followers who will speak of him. And that requires maybe the greatest submission of all. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you for reigning and ruling and in such a gentle way. Your power is extreme, strong, and yet you used it so gently, so strategically, so incisively as to make great of it. Make something of us, we pray. Use us as subjects in your kingdom and reign and rule over the universe, we ask in Jesus' name.